So Tibetan Tantra may be the least known about to Western people, and yet it is a very profound path of Tantra. So there are many secrets there. What are those secrets and what is the relevance to Westerners? And I will be interviewing Jamper Stewart on this amazing topic. So welcome, this is Shashi from Tantra Made Easy. And today I'm excited to do it. Now he is a facilitator, a teacher, um, and also an acupuncturist, a great healer. And he teaches, he's a Tai Chi master. He's an acupuncturist. He works in the school of the Tibetan and Taoist meditation. And the Healing Dao Institute, and he's working in the Valley Spirit Wellness Center. So we are going to be chatting today about the Tibetan lineage. So this is one of the more mysterious lineages that we have, maybe the one that's least accessible to Western people, and yet has many gifts to offer. And we'll be looking a little bit at the comparisons between the Tibetan and the Taoist uh, practices. So I'd like to welcome Jampa. Hello and welcome. Thank you. It's good to Thank see you, Joshi. Thank you for <laughs> inviting me. Thank you for being here today. I'm I'm super excited because uh, I love to bring to people different lineages, different practices. I think we're living in amazing times when we have access to all these things from all over the world. Very different from the olden days where you had to kind of be born into lineages, and. Uh, and there's so much richness for people from different ones. And yet I, in all of my interviews and meeting with people, I think that the Tibetan path is the one that's still the most mysterious. So thank you so much for being here today to share. You're most welcome. <laughs> and I wonder if we could just begin with your own personal story of how did you end up here? How did you get into these paths in the first place? You're originally from the States, right? Yes, from outside of Rochester, New York, in the Northeast. Uh, I was in high school when a friend of mine uh, introduced me to Zen. His mother had invited Philip Kaplow, a Zen master, uh, one of the first in the country, to establish uh, a Zen center there. And so through his mother, he got introduced and I got introduced. and. I read Kaplow's book, The Three Pillars of Zen, and decided that that was the most important thing in life, to become enlightened, to awaken my Buddha nature. Um, and so I was practicing at the Rochester Zen Center, and then I wanted a more intense focused practice. So I moved to the San Francisco Zen Center on the West Coast, and uh, so there I lived in the in the dorms, the student dorms there, and started our meditation at uh, 4.40 in the morning. And, wow. Uh, and then there were just two sittings a day during the regular time, and, and another one at, I think, 5 o'clock in the evening uh, for, I think, two hours in the evening, and about an hour in the morning. And what I found was that it was very hard for me to sit. My, I just wasn't that flexible 
<laughs> sit for 35 or 40 minutes at a round. You, you sit, then you do walking meditation, sit for 35 or 40 minutes, another walking meditation, then chanting afterwards. It was just horribly painful for me to sit. Mm. My legs would fall asleep and then they would start to throb and hurt. And, <laughs> and so it was just a question of how much pain I could endure. <laughs> I know that from you, Pessness. <laughs> it was very difficult. And while I was out there, one morning, one of my uh, dorm mates got up and started doing Tai Chi in the room. Now, this was way back when dinosaurs ruled the earth. It was 1969, and I'd never heard of or seen Tai Chi before. And I said, what is that that you're doing? He said, well, it's a Chinese form of moving meditation and martial arts. He started describing it to me. He's studying with Cheng Man Ching in New York City. And then he said, but there's a there's a great Tai Chi master here in Chinatown. And uh, we should go early some morning. So we, we got up even earlier, went to the first round of sitting, and then, uh, and then ran down to Chinatown and observed this 75-year-old Tai Chi master doing the most beautiful dance-like movements I'd ever seen. And uh, I really wanted to learn that because I was told it's a moving meditation. It's based on the I Ching, the Chinese book of change. And uh, during the, the movements you go through, all of the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching, all the different processes of change within the laboratory of your own body. Mm. And amazing do meditation while moving plus it was a martial art how cool <laughs> so i moved back to rochester and uh, continued to practice at the zen center and finally started bringing in a student of cheng man chings to teach from new york uh, it was infrequent and eventually i found a chinese teacher xing Peng, who was teaching in rochester and i became a close student of his and and in the, in the process of practicing Tai Chi, they made all these references to the Tao, to Taoism. It's a Taoism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and to Qi. And uh, <clears throat> so I was fascinated by this. And as I practiced more Tai Chi, I suddenly found that I could see the Qi. Even at night, I could see this light between my hands. And uh, I wanted to learn more about Qi. And so um, that came a little bit later. I practiced Tai Chi. At one point, I just gave up Tai Chi, gave up meditation, just became a, a, a financial planner. No, <laughs> I didn't know that. These <laughs> pinstripe suits, smoking cigars, drinking cognac. And I just had to get away from it for a while. So my perspective on it was not just an embellishment of my ego and being able to tell people fascinating spiritual stories. But after about five or six years, I, was, I had such a yearning that I needed to start practicing again. And I resumed my practice of Tai Chi. I resumed my practice of, of Zen. And, uh, but one other thing I should mention is that back in... 1969, when I was practicing in San Francisco, I went to Fields Bookstore, a metaphysical bookstore that I don't even know if it's there anymore. But I bought the life, uh, Tibet's great yogi, Milarepa, and I read the story of his life, the most famous yogi 
ever from Tibet. Such a beautiful story and the relationship with this guru, with his teacher, with his lama was so close that it made me weep when I read it, when I read it and I and I resolved that if there's any way possible, I would study Tibetan Buddhism. And so that was actually what started me meditating again. In 1980, a friend of mine, or 81, uh, was getting married at this monastery in Woodstock, New York, Karmatriyana Dharma Chakra. Went down to his wedding and met the, the, the abbot, the head lama, Kempo Kartar Rinpoche. And the energy of that place and the energy of this man were so pervasive, so powerful. They say that when you, uh, when the Tibetans are practicing, they, they develop this huge field around them and you can feel it from a hundred yards away. And it was mm -hmm. so, and I started going down. Uh, they, they, the uh, translator taught me the basic Tibetan meditation and started doing that. And eventually I had an interview with the abbot after a number of visits and asked him if I, if he would take me on as my teacher. And he said, yes, I'll be your teacher. Mm. And all since the sixties, people talk about finding their guru. You know, I must find my guru. I don't know who it is. They say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I walked out of that interview. I found my guru and uh, wept. And again, same lineage as Milarepa. And so I started practicing with him. I was still doing Tai Chi, started a Tai Chi center, uh, found a new Tai Chi teacher, uh, Kai Sung. And but I felt that it was through Kempo Kartar's blessing of accepting me as his student that uh, I heard about Mantachia. It was through mm -hmm. his blessing. And oh, wow. So I heard about him. He was teaching in Ithaca, New York. And I went down and went to his workshop and found it astonishing, just amazing. Uh, he taught microcosmic orbit and healing love through the Tao. That was secrets of love. And, so you really came to these two paths like in a parallel time even. It wasn't within, just one and the other, but right. actually you met Mantak Chia and the Taoist path at the same time that you were also going very deep with the Tibetan teachings. Did you find any difficulty being in, in two different paths, you know, to, to find the integration point for yourself? I didn't. Uh, tai Chi was such a part of my life and energy work was a part of my life. The sexual practices were something of great interest to me and uh, they all seem to overlap. They all mm -hmm. seem to be talking about the same things but from a different different angle. Mm -hmm. so it was not difficult for me. In fact, I found that even when I go on a Buddhist meditation retreat, I'll start with the Taoist practices. I'll start with the inner smile and the microcosmic orbit. And I find that if I just went to a Buddhist retreat, it would take me some days to get into it. Mm -hmm. I have to just let settle all of the activity of the mind that happens when you're in, living in the world and juggling business and family and all of the demands of the world. 
So it takes a few days of retreat to really settle in. Do you notice that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I would start with the microcosmic orbit and the inner smile, within the middle of the first day, I was there. And then I would immerse myself into deeper, into just more fully into the Buddhist practices. And were your teachers uh, happy with you bringing the other one in? Sometimes the teacher wants you only to do their thing, or are you just kind of quietly doing your own <laughs> inner smile? Well, I, I did talk to Montak Chia about it. I didn't yeah. talk to my uh, I didn't talk to my Buddhist teachers about my right. <laughs> no. He was happy, I'm sure. So, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, as you? I mean, I've always felt like the Himalayas as a region somehow carried all these very similar teachings from Kashmiri Shaivism Tantra then you've got Tibet in the middle and all the Tibetan Buddhism, and then all the way across to China, and then the Taoist teachings, but it's very much the same region. I, I, I imagine a lot of the teachers were, were traveling across those mountains and carrying them. So I, 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 I think there's a lot of similarities in them. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about these two parts, and especially around the sexual practices. So Mantak Chia really brought the secret sexual practices of Taoism out. He brought it to the Western world, and so many of us, like you and myself, have uh, benefited from studying with him and then teaching to others. Um, but in, I, I, you don't hear it so much in the Tibetan um, world. We know there's a Tibetan tantra, but it seems to be a lot more mysterious. Can you can you explain why why that is? Is it just for monks? Is it just for experts? Is it does it exist? Well, big questions. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, from the Taoist perspective, first of all, there was there was exchange between China and Tibet via the Silk Road. It wasn't only trade goods, but it was also philosophy and teachings and medicine. All of these traveled along the Silk Road. And as far as the practices in China were concerned, the microcosmic orbit, as well as the sexual practices in China were relatively secret. The, the indoor disciples, the ones who either were family members or very close students after a number of years of study would start to be able to learn these. It was the family members, the Taoist monks or hermits or priests would learn these practices. And then the very wealthy uh, the nobles would buy these practices, would buy mm -hmm. these practices. But the rank and file people were illiterate. The rank and file people didn't know these. There were no books, no videos, no magazines. And these teachings were very secret. So uh, Montag Chia talked about it. It wasn't until the early 1900s that the microcosmic orbit was even taught, uh, was even taught openly. I were they secret, Jumper? Do you know? <laughs> like now we have them everywhere and there doesn't seem to be a lot of harm with that. So why do you think they were secret? Because uh, knowledge is power. Working with energy is power. Working mm -hmm. with sexual energy is even more power, more power. And so partly it had to do with the masters not wanting power to fall into the wrong hands. Uh, people who did not have the proper motivation and the proper ethics to do it, and partly because 
the teachers like to have the power themselves. They like mm -hmm. to have the knowledge. I mean, they're, they didn't always have the totally pure motivation. Typically, among many of the Chinese teachers, it's well known that they might teach 60 to 80% of what they know, but they'll always keep 20 to 40% for themselves so that they are the, the king or queen bee. And <laughs> so that they have the power, sad to say, but true. Mm -hmm. um, and so these energy teachings were first introduced from the Taoist perspective by a master, Yin Shitsu, I think was his name. His, his story is written about in Kuan Yu's uh, Secrets of Chinese Meditation. He tells his story about how he healed himself from uh, tuberculosis by being shown the microcosmic orbit and going mm -hmm. to the mountains and practicing at a time where they had no medicine to really heal tuberculosis. Um, so he started writing those. And he also wrote about some about Tibetan Buddhism. So that's why these stories were kept secret from the Chinese perspective. Uh, among the Tibetans, the sexual practices go back to the real introduction and foundation and the energy practices of Tantra go back to Padmasambhava in the seventh uh, century. Uh, he came and taught, he had a consort, Yeshi Tsogyal, and her story in a wonderful book Sky Dancer uh, talks about both the energetic and the sexual practices uh, in, in somewhat open secret language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so they went back that far. Padmasambhava obviously was not a monk. He was called the second Buddha. He, he established Buddhism in Tibet. And uh, Shantarakshita and Atisha really, Atisha really reestablished the monastic tradition in Tibet about three or 400 years after Padmasambhava. And the majority, they always talked about the red robes and the white robes. So the red robe people were the monks and nuns and the white robes were the, the nagpas, the yogis, the lay people, the tantrikas. Well, they all practiced tantra, but tantra all of Tibetan Buddhist practice is Tantra, not just the sexual practices. So all of the meditations, uh, outer, inner, and secret Tantras, all have to do with, with uh, it's all Tantra, not just the sexual practices. So it has to do, as the word Tantra implies, it's a thread, it's a continuity. But it has to do on a higher level with transforming the, the five poisons into the five wisdoms. Tans transforming your your negative emotions into into wisdom mm -hmm. and so that's done just through the meditations as well as through the sexual practices but the majority of tibetan practitioners of tantra are monks monks and nuns and as mm -hmm. a monk or a nun you're celibate mm -hmm. some in some of the lineage they say that when you reach a point of being very advanced in your practice, where you've developed, uh, you've de developed uh, bodhicitta or the, the mind of compassion, uh, the, uh, 
the relative bodhicitta is, is compassion, compassion for others and making the decision like Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva, compassion student of Buddhas who said, I, I will continue to be reborn until the last blade of grass becomes enlightened. <laughs> so that, that bodhicitta means awakening bodhi is awakening, citta is mind or heart. So a bodhisattva is an awakening hero who takes those vows. Um, and so, so you're just saying they were celibate. So what are the sexual practices um, to, a, to a celibate monk or a nun? Well, like, well, there's two possibilities. One is they, they will visualize uh, a consort. They'll visualize uh, a dakini. In some of the practices, the, the female visualizes herself as a female and visualizes a male deity, a Buddha or a teacher, Padmasambhava or, or one of the other enlightened beings as their consort. And they do the practice with that visualization. So they're arousing themselves, uh, but it's all done without uh, an actual living consort. So there's the the, the Janana Mudra, or the Wisdom Seal, the Wisdom Consort, and then there's the Karma Mudra, which literally means the Action Seal, and that's where you have an actual consort. So for the monks and nuns, in many of the traditions, they'll just practice with a, a visualized consort. Mm -hmm. Whereas in some lineages, even for the monks and nuns, it's said either, I've heard different stories, either they temporarily give back their vows of celibacy so that they can practice with a partner. Or the view is that you don't keep lower vows uh, in, to prevent you from practicing the higher vows, the, 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 the faster path to enlightenment. So even as a monk or nun, it would still be within keeping uh, to practice with a consort. So there's different views among the different lineages and different teachers of when you can practice. Mm -hmm. The one lineage that is most famous for the consort practice these days is the Nyingmapa, or the ancient ones, the old ones, the original lineage established by Pabasambhava. And they, uh, there are many more lay people who, no pun intended, uh, that uh, <laughs> practice, <laughs> that that do the sexual practices uh, without having taken any vows to be celibate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I remember Mantachia um, produced a study, somehow done with worms, but it was to like uh, look at uh, at health and longevity um, of of being celibate and sublimating. Now I can't remember the details. Maybe you know more about it. I just remember the the conclusion was that uh, with sexual practices, with or without actual lovemaking, um, it's it's very healthy to move your energy. And I do remember a statistic that the Western nuns, like Christian nuns, had a really high levels of ovarian cancer. And of course, that makes sense from the stagnation in the ovaries. But doing sexual practices is going to help with longevity, life force, energy coming up to the brain, but also avoiding illness from stagnation that if you're not going to have physical sex your physiology still needs to move the energy you remember the 
Do you experiment with the worms? I do. They were, I believe, nematodes. <laughs> and uh, you actually uh, can buy uh, at a gardening store nematodes to spread on your lawn to produce uh, ants in your yard. Uh, but they're very, very sexually active uh, <laughs> creature, very small little worms, basically. And they, I don't know how they did it, but they, I mean, they're microscopic, but they took <clears throat> three different groups of nematodes. One group uh, was not altered at all, and they were allowed to have as much sex as they wanted. The other group were segregated, so they had to be celibate. And the third group had their, I guess it would be like uh, getting a, a vasectomy. They'd have their tubes tied so that they wouldn't have any ejaculation, uh, and, but they could have all the sex that they wanted and they're measuring their lifespan. And they found that uh, the group that uh, of nematodes that ejaculated lived the shortest. Mm -hmm. The celibate lived a little bit longer. The ones who uh, were sexually active but had no ejaculation lived much longer. Than ah, <laughs> that's brilliant. I knew it was a good study. <laughs> it was a good study. And, uh, so the idea in both the majority of the, the methods of, of, uh, of Taoism, uh, as well as the Tibetan Buddhist practices say that for men, you need to conserve the jing, conserve mm -hmm. the sperm. And, and also for women, a little mm -hmm. less important because women don't lose as much in the way of uh, fluid or egg. The jing is in the egg. So, uh, so women lose less through orgasm, even with uh, uh, female ejaculation. There is some loss of hormones in that practice, but it's minuscule compared to what men lose. Women lose more, obviously, with the menstruation when the egg is sloughed off. Um, but uh, there are some Taoist sects and some Buddhist sects who say that it's okay to ejaculate, and in particular, again, in, in some of the some of the Tibetan practices and many of the Taoist teachings, the teachings were pretty much uh, oriented toward men, mm -hmm. and so the instructions that were given were geared toward men, and women were often taught the same practices, even when they were inappropriate for mm -hmm. women. So, as as you probably observed. Uh, women and men have different organs. You know, I, I know that you're on top of things, so you probably caught that. And, <laughs> and so with our different organs, different practices are appropriate. And so for many of the women's practices that were really specifically geared toward women in Tibet, excuse me, I have to just uh, adjust my screen here. There we go. Uh, so in the practices that were specifically written for women, it was okay for men to ejaculate. 
and their stories of the left-handed path where both women and men will be using their consort, their partner, draining them, if you will, drawing their energy to enhance their, to, their partner's energy to enhance their own energy. So in, the, in some of the tantras in, in Tibet, uh, men would be encouraged to ejaculate and that ejaculate gives, gives uh, the women more power. Mm -hmm. I feel like to, like to tell the stories about women who are like sexual vampires who would- White tigresses, right? Tigresses who would encourage their, their partners to ejaculate and take that jing energy to strengthen themselves. And so you can see this in some couples, who's getting the energy from the love. Yeah. You can see that, especially I've seen it in what you call spring autumn relationships where an older woman and a younger male or a, an older male and a younger woman uh, will be partners and the older partner will look vibrant and youthful and the younger partner will look very pale and drained. It's obvious who's getting the energy. Mm -hmm. um, but then maybe that's a really good reason to learn the sexual arts, right? Because in many ways, you know, like we all have to learn how to work with our own energy. And if we stay unconscious with our energy, um, there will always be people ready to take it and steal it. It's kind of like leaving your wallet with the car window open or whatever. <laughs> and I think, I think it's the same with, with sexual energy. It is really powerful. And even if people are unconsciously sucking it, um, if, you, if you're unconscious with it, people will come and take it. And, and I think it's a very good reason to, to learn how to work with this energy, become conscious of it in yourself so you can feel it in others and, and, um, and, and to know what you're doing. Well, yes, absolutely. I think that there are two teachers, contemporary teachers, who are really teaching the dual cultivation path so that neither is getting drained and both partners are benefiting. And obviously the Taoist teacher who's done the most to really further that perspective is Mantak Chia. And so he's emphasized instead of having a zillion partners, you have, you have one partner that you deepen and practice and exchange so that both are receiving uh, yin and yang energy, the energies from our, our polarities to help to strengthen and balance us. It's an exchange, and, and the among the uh, Tibetans, there's a teacher that's recently emerged teaching around the world. I think he's teaching in 40 countries. It's a Dr. Nida Chenetsong, and uh, he's published, I brought this along to show, he's published the first really detailed book on, uh, mm. on the Tibetan pra uh, sexual practices. Called Karma Mudra, the Yoga of Bliss. Chenag Song is his name. And he's published a number of different books. You can find him on YouTube. Uh, it's a lot of different, a lot of different books out on Tibetan medicine and the the great completion or great perfection medical system. You talk into. And there is he also teaching about a balance. I, I remember reading a book. Maybe you've read Passionate Enlightenment by Miranda Shaw. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, this book was quite an eye opener for me because she was retranslating a lot of the scriptures that were originally translated by 
British Victorian men and actually finding that it wasn't just enlightened Buddhas with kind of, you know, prostitute consorts, but actually many of the Dakinis were really awakened women who were actually awakening the men they were with. So it, he, she kind of, her translations kind of really turned some of the assumptions on their head and, um, and found that the women were more, more awakened and more conscious than was assumed by the British Victorian translators of early days. So I'm, I'm curious if that book that you waved around, the, the practices there, are there practices for women and men and are, are they different? How does it compare to the Taoist um, lineage? It's very, very similar. It's very similar, uh, but also has some important differences. Um, in the Taoist practice, Mantak Chia, through his books and through his teachings, starts with a course on healing love through the Tao or Taoist secrets of love, cultivating um, male and female sexual energy. Um, and so it comes off as just being a practice to the, the way it's evolved is being a practice to have multiple orgasms and have much, much uh, happier, greater sex life. Um, and uh, it's only really in the higher practices where we start to get into the the true sacred sexuality. And so I like to describe the Taoist practices as having three different aspects that we teach. The first is for health, sexual practices for health. Uh, one in seven women are liable to get breast cancer in, in the States at least. It may vary from country to country. Uh, men, if they live long enough, will get testicular cancer. and. Uh, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, very prominent, not to mention uh, menstrual difficulties that women have, menstrual cramps, infertility uh, for men, and premature ejaculation and uh, erectile dysfunction. Uh, there's a ton of, of uh, issues, health issues that practicing the Taoist sexual practices can help with. Mm -hmm. uh, then the second is the art of the bedchamber, just in, enhancing your, your pleasure and lovemaking, enhancing your pleasure and how to enhance your, your partner's uh, sexual pleasure. So there's that whole body of teachings within what we do. Uh, so then the third is sacred sexuality. And for me in the Taoist system, that has, has to do with really being able to circulate not just qi and exchange qi, but to exchange jing, to exchange mm -hmm. sexual energy. So sexual energy, as, as Mantachia has taught us, is multiplying energy. It's creative energy. Even in uh, Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, he devotes quite a bit to talk about sexual energy. And yeah. that is our source of, of creative energy. And creative people have a lot of sexual energy. And so it's not that they're necessarily intentionally sublimating um, that, but uh, it just happens. They're able to convert mm -hmm. their sexual energy uh, into form. Mm -hmm. so a woman can take that seed and give form to, to the being, to manifest it. Um, so with that exchange of jing, it's a denser, thicker energy. You circulate that energy. You do it your, you practice by yourself, and the Tibetans do a lot of, also a lot of self-practice, solo practice, before really being able to 
practice with a partner. It takes, takes time, as you know, to develop it. Mm -hmm. and then you can practice with a partner. Um, so when you can exchange that Jing energy and circulate it through your microcosmic orbit and your partner's orbit pathway, I say microcosmic, but just through those pathways, exchanging energy like, a, like an infinity uh, symbol. It's the greatest bliss, it's the greatest intimacy, and the, the, the bliss is so, so strong, like it's beyond total body orgasm, orgasm really. It's, it's, uh, it's incredibly powerful. So to me, that's the beginning of sacred sexuality. But then it goes on through the practice, the working with Jing, working with sexual energy, working with the Jing means essence, working with that essence. Our DNA is our essence, and that's in the egg and the sperm. So it's our essence, essential human being. When you circulate that energy, uh, it gives birth to that state of mind of, of awareness, greater awareness, greater wisdom. Um, one of the one of the aspects that the Tibetans emphasize is that one of the biggest problems of meditation is that our minds wander. Our mind goes off. It takes a long time to learn how to focus your mind in meditation, but with sex, sexual arousal, definitely gets your attention. <laughs> <laughs> right? That strong desire totally grabs your attention, so it becomes very powerful. And, in focusing your mind, mm -hmm. and um, of course, you know, sexual pleasure is is about the greatest pleasure in life, right? So, uh, so when your mind can be focused and you're experiencing this great bliss, one thing that the Tibetans focus on that's a little bit different from many of the Taoists is that at that time we have a tendency when you're having pleasure, you have a tendency to want to grab onto it, want to hang onto it. I want it, I want it. So there's a great deal of almost uh, passionate greed for that and attachment to that sexual pleasure. We become very attached to our lovers. Uh, we become very attached to sex. And the great English poet, artist, William Blake had one of my favorite quotes with regard to this. He said, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy? But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. <laughs> so when, when you're experiencing pleasure, whether you try to hang on to it or not, it's going to pass. Mm -hmm. go. So you just enjoy it without <laughs> attachment, without, without clinging to it. And mm -hmm. at the same time, in that mind, in that state of mind, you if you're accustomed to, to doing higher level practice, you focus on your wisdom awareness. Wisdom doesn't have to do with having memorized the Proverbs in the Bible. It has to do with the wisdom of awareness that's beyond thought, our, our cognition, our awareness that's non-dual, is beyond self and other. And so the creative sexual energy will enhance that. So in the midst of that focus, in the midst of that great bliss, in the midst of that pleasure, 
just don't hang on to it. Don't hang on to self. Don't hang on to other. That's where your other meditations support you in that, in, in those practices. So when you exchange with a partner, you're balancing your yin and yang. You're giving birth to great bliss and you're, and you're using your wisdom and awareness. Yesterday, I was chatting with Margot Anand and she said um, she wanted to share a koan with me and it was uh, at the peak of desire, remain desireless. Remain desireless at the peak of desire, something like this. And I love that. It's like that's uh, that's the that's another yin yang. That's another paradox from which you can dissolve is to have desirelessness and desire meet and find the desirelessness within the desire, which is uh, which is really this to to allow it without attaching to it. And I and I and I feel that that's the essence of what shifts it from just being a like many people think of tantra as just a sexual technique, like you say, that kind of middle bit that's about pleasure, and the and really what can transform it into a spiritual experience is that is finding that um, shiva to the shakti, that presence that can witness and just let shakti dance without holding on. So a higher so practice, indeed. It's <laughs> the union of shiva and shakti. Uh, that creates that creates that balance those uh, those poles between yin and yang. Mm -hmm. So just to talk a little bit about the uh, some of the similarities and differences in the in the Tibetan and the Taoist practice. Um, with uh, among the Taoists, we initially practice circulating our energy through the, the governing vessel and conception vessel. In that loop and exchanging in that way, um, the, the the Tibetan Buddhists focus on the central channel, the core mm -hmm. channel, extending from the from the clitoris or the, the glands of the penis, and then the base goes down deeper and up to the up to the crown and back down. And on the way up, uh, of course, there are the different pathways. You're bringing the jing, you're bringing the energy up. As the, as the body get around, gets aroused, as you know, it tends to gather toward the genitals. And so initially you bring the energy up to the crown. And then in the crown, there's said to be, uh, uh, what do you say, a, a pearl, a drop, in the Taoist terms, a tigle or bindu. And the energies, when they blend, drip down and bring bliss to the different chakras, to the to the crown chakra, to the throat chakra, to the heart chakra, to the navel chakra. Uh, and uh, at each successive uh, chakra, the bliss becomes greater. This becomes stronger. So they call how uh, does Nita Chinet song says that the first one at the crown is bliss or emptiness at the throat it's uh supreme uh, well actually in this way it starts at the crown and then you start with the throat chakra so that's bliss you experience bliss at the heart chakra supreme bliss <laughs> emptiness at the navel chakra special bliss or ex uh, extreme emptiness and then at the root chakra uh, primordial bliss or total emptiness uh, uh -huh. and then you reverse it and you do the same so you do 
emptiness at the root chakra, uh, bliss, supreme bliss at the navel chakra, uh, extreme or special bliss at the heart, extreme emptiness, and then uh, primordial bliss and total emptiness at the, at the throat chakra. So you practice by yourself with the mm -hmm. channel until you have proficiency, and then of course practicing with a partner. So the thing when we're learning the Tao is um, is about the pumps. So the Taoists teach that the spine has different pumps that kind of refine the Jing Chi as, as it moves up. So it goes from more dense to more like. So uh, I remember being taught it's always safer to bring energy up the spine because of the pumps and taking it up through the core channel can shoot up in the brain and create Kundalini psychosis. That's something I heard. I later on experienced move, moving the energy up the core channel and found it to be very strong but maybe by the time i practiced it it wasn't causing problems because i was already running practicing the orbit regularly in my life but i'm curious if you have something to share about that as you do both um do you have any experience that it's safer to draw it up the spine or a different effect well i had practiced the taoist method before i started doing the tibetan method and um, so to me, I like to use the simile of the central channel as being like Main Street in the city. Whereas <laughs> the microcosmic orbit is like the beltway around the city. And, uh, and so one of the functions of the beltway is that it relieves traffic on Main Street. And so uh, if Main Street becomes crowded, the traffic comes to a halt. So suffice it to say, it's easier to get stuck. To have your energy get stuck somewhere along the way, get stuck in the crown, uh, or to get stuck in the throat. Or, uh, mm -hmm. you, if you don't have the beltway open. Mm -hmm. I don't think the Tibetans uh, have the microcosm. Actually, they do. They do talk about it in, in one system. But for the most part, they don't talk about the, the pathway of the governor and conception, mm -hmm. governing and conception. Vessels. Maybe because there's so much meditation in the path, then there's a lot of purification through meditation. Um, so maybe that also makes uh, a difference. I notice for myself that my when I have all the channels open and energy chooses where it goes for itself, I'm not so much guiding it. I notice when I'm with a partner and it's more on a personal level, like we're really having a personal connection, that my orbit runs and exchanges. But if we're doing more of a ritual and we're making prayer and we're offering our sexual energy up, it automatically tends to go up through the core channel. So I've just noticed that without trying to make that happen of like, ah, you know, somehow like sex magic or, or, or offering energy up in a sublimation, a devotion, anything that's more ritualistic. It, it tends, so if, it's, if I'm aiming more spiritual, it seems to go through my core channel. And if I'm aiming more personal, it seems to run through the orbit. So that's something I've noticed in my own uh, practice and my own way of understanding it. Um, but yeah, true to the teachings I received, I always, I always uh, initiate and work with the microcosmic orbit when I'm teaching people because I know that that's such a safe way. And I know that Mantak Chia helped people who were overwhelmed by Kundalini by opening their orbit. But I love your explanation of, of getting, getting the, the clearing that way because um, well, I think that's a very important part too. In the, uh, in the Tibetan system, uh, working with the core channel, the way of bringing the energy up, 
is you do the what's called the kumbaka or the vase breath. And so this is like the packing in, uh, in the Taoist uh, and Buddhist uh, iron shirt qigong, where you're mm -hmm. pressing down with the diaphragm, pulling up uh, at the pelvic floor, pulling up the anus, the sexual center, the back, and creating pressure in the abdomen. And that also is, creates heat. So this sexual practice is based on the, the tumo, or the fierce woman, or the yoga of inner heat. And so that's what, it, that plus the mind and the intention, which should be fairly strong by the time one gets to that level of practice, that's what guides the energy up. It's not mm -hmm. in the, doing the small sip breathing or any other types of breathing other than that. It's just repeatedly doing the, the kumbhaka, the vase breath to guide the energy up to the crown and using your intention. As you advance in the Taoist practices, as you well know, um, after having done the microcosmic orbit and being able to exchange energy with your partner through that, in both the Tibetan and the Taoist practices, it's advisable to have a, a partner who's at the same level or more advanced than you, uh, so you can really practice together. And uh, so in that way, you both can do this practice. So one of the ways of exchanging energy, rather than just using your partner as being the source of great bliss, if you're using the microcosmic, if you're using the Tibetan system, is that you can guide your energy up the core channel to your heart, and then you can guide it back down and to, the, to the point of union with your partner, and then guide it up their central channel to their heart. So it's... Yeah, this one going back and forth in that way and that induces because you're bringing it to your heart we, we in the healing light of the Tao, Mantachia uh, talks about the union of, uh, of the heart and the, and the genitals the fire and water the sexual energy and uh, emotional energy and how to how to unite those energies so it gives birth not only to great love, but to a, a, just a really vast and awesome state of awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, the Tibetans focus a lot on the heart center. This is another difference. Rather than focusing so much on the Dantian, which we do mm -hmm. in the, the uh, Tumo, in the sexual practice, um, it's... Uh, it's... Uh, heart center. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed because I practice um, some tantric yoga and and then the Taoist Qigong that, you know, I've, I've practiced with the heart center and I tend to, I tend to always do that even if I'm teaching Qigong, bring, bring open the heart center first as a bridge between heaven and earth and use the Dantian for gathering in the end and building embodied consciousness. I like both so much. Mm. <laughs> There's so much value to to both as a center. That's beautiful. Well, I, I, I'd like to. Oh, I'm sorry, you have wanted to say. And something. I just I see that you have a tanker behind you and all these wonderful Tibetan things. Just just a one little question on uh, Tibetan tantra, which it seems very simple, but so big in in the tantra world is the yab yum. So this uh, statue.
symbolizes uh, so much of Tibetan Tantra is the Buddha with the Dakini sitting in his lap, known as Yabyom. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. It's, it's a very uh, well-known phrase in the Neo-Tantra world because people sit in this posture when they're doing meditations, often with the third eye touching. But as it's from that lineage, I wonder if you could speak just a little bit about it. Um, you're talking about Yabyom or the posture or? Yeah. The, the posture is, is shown as a sitting posture uh, for women and men to practice. And it's practice largely because when you're sitting in meditation, uh, you're sitting in that cross-legged posture. So certainly in uh, Tibetan lovemaking, it's not the it's not the only posture in which you can practice. Um, it's just one that's one in particular that's shown, but it's very beautiful because mm -hmm. you're like in missionary posture, you're you're joined heart to heart and also genitals to genital. Uh, in order to keep this uh, the sexual practices secret, and the Tibetans are extremely secretive about this. In fact. Uh, just besides uh, uh, Miranda Shaw's you know, Passion and Enlightenment and the details as presented in uh, Dr. Nia Chenisong's Karma Mudra book, they never talk about it. And so they just stress the symbolic essence of it, which is uh, the, union of, uh, the union of bliss and awareness, mm -hmm. the union of awareness and emptiness. So... So when they show the deities, they say the, the, the female represents emptiness and the male is awareness. So it's awareness and emptiness or clear light and emptiness, emptiness and clear light. Clear light is appearance, basically. So appearance and emptiness is another way of describing it. Appearance and emptiness, awareness and emptiness. So... So it could be taken symbolically and then also literally practiced. And that's what's usually emphasized. Well, yeah, I remember being in, where was I, Luang Prabang, and there was a beautiful little antique store and uh, had incredible statues, I guess, because of the silk route and, and many, many things being carried. And just seeing these statues, and, and actually if you turn them upside down, you can see the Vajra and the Yoni connected, and that it's... Um, it's, it's there for those that want to ponder it, but it's, as you say, expressed through art rather than um, put out directly. So people have to do the rest of the in, in, inquiry for themselves. Yes, there's... There's uh, there still is a tremendous amount of secrecy uh, within among the Tibetans. There, it took a long time before they were willing to teach a lot of the even the basic uh, the tumo or a lot of the six what are called the six yogas of Naropa, the dream yoga, and bardo yoga, and illusory body yoga. Poar, transference of consciousness, yoga. All of these were part of the six yogas of Naropa. Tumo was the foundation of all of them. And Tumo is the foundation of 
the sexual practices. So you practice the yoga of the inner heat. You've heard about the yogis who uh, will meditate either naked or with a loincloth or just wrapped in a, a sheet, a cotton sheet dipped into a freezing river and wrapped <laughs> up in it. And in the winter time, they go outside and not only do they dry the sheets, uh, but they melt the snow in a circle about four feet around them and completely dry the sheets. And so in some of the retreats, apparently, uh, in the Himalayas, they, they, the different retreatants uh, will have a competition to see how many sheets they can dry with their, with their yoga of the inner heat. But literally, Tumo is fierce human. And so you're focusing on a, a wrathful dakini, lower uh, dantian, that's, uh, that's engendering the fire, that's engendering the heat. That and the, the vase breath, the kublaka, engenders that. So, uh, but they're really, now they're, they've begun to teach those more openly outside of retreat. Before, it was even hard to get the Tibetan lamas to even mention that such practices mm -hmm. existed. But, uh, and even with the highest levels, uh, let's see, hold on one second here. Even with the, even with the highest uh, levels of meditation, they, um, they're teaching those now, but they're very, very, very secretive about the sexual practices and why do you think that is because of misuse like you said at the beginning because of misuse of power fear that people are haven't developed enough misunderstand it misunderstand what they're doing or i think there are different reasons i think one reason is that somehow i think that the tibetans have this idea that Westerners are sex obsessed. I don't know why they would say that, despite the fact that 90% of the internet is devoted to sex sites, from what I've heard. Uh, so they just want people to really focus on the, the basics, developing mm -hmm. compassion, focusing on Tonglen, sending and receiving, uh, exchanging yourself with others. They want. Mm. They don't want people leaping into the sexual practices before they're qualified. Mm -hmm. Major reasons. I don't know if they're as secretive with the with their Tibetan students as they are with their Western students. Mm -hmm. That's that's my main understanding as to why. That's I, I experience it almost as the opposite. I think if people are drawn into Tantra or Taoism or, or any of these parts because they want better orgasms, that's fine because they'll usually end up having a profound spiritual experience and opening their heart while they're doing it. <laughs> I met, I interviewed one man and he said, I came to Tantra for the sex and I found God. And I oh, thought, <laughs> no, that's a good quote. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely lures you in. <laughs> um, well, Jumper, I see that we're up to one hour already, so I could chat with you for forever. I love hearing all of your wisdom and the weavings of teachings, but um, we're going to have to bring this to a close for now. 
I want to say thank you so much, not only for what you've shared today, but thank you for the dedication that you have given your life to, because it clearly shows um, talking with you, uh, also in your energy field, um, all the years of dedication and practice really radiating out of you. So thank you so much for sharing yourself here today. You're so welcome. And uh, even though you are across the ocean from me, I can I can feel your great, radiant, warm, loving heart from mm -hmm. here. So I thank you so much for mm -hmm. for inviting me to talk with you about these wonderful, secret, powerful, uh, important subjects. It's really mm -hmm. been a, a pleasure. Mm -hmm. I look forward to talking with you again. <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. Be well.